5, if you would turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, we are presently going through the Sermon on the Mount. And our text begins today in verse 27. So Matthew 5, verse 27, you could remain seated if you'd like. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right eye, I'm sorry, your right hand, we've got to leave the eyes alone here, the right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say, what you had to say then, Lord, that we might be able to understand it, that we might be able to comprehend what you were saying, what you were doing, And that, Lord, our faith would be built. We believe your word, that faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. And so we believe by faith that by simply spending time in your word today, looking at your teachings, reading your words, that our faith will be built. So we thank you in advance and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount. You know, I think most Christians are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. And sometimes there's a danger when we when we become so familiar or we think we're so familiar with a portion of scripture that I've you know I've got that. I understand that. I know everything there is to know about that, you know. Maybe you're a kid and you say, I I memorized the Sermon on the Mount. Some kids, you know, they have great minds and they can just remember things and but I'll tell you, we're in danger if we do that to any portion of scripture, in my opinion. You know, I've been walking with the Lord for almost going on 45 years, and I've taught the Word of God to one degree or another for almost the extent of that 40-plus years. And I don't feel for a moment that I have a grip on a full understanding of the Word of God. It is every time I study a portion of scripture or read a portion of scripture, there is something that jumps out, something new that I see that I had not seen before. In fact, it happened to me just last night. I've been saying for the past few weeks that if there was a key verse to the Sermon on the Mount, the key verse would be verse 20. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that is a key verse. But I believe that there's even a shorter key verse to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it goes hand in glove with this particular verse. And it's actually the last verse found in chapter 5. The last verse found in chapter 5 It says, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, we have these bookends. 
Now, for them, as they heard these words of Jesus, you know, your, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We've talked about this. I've talked about it. I'm doing all the talking up here. But uh, that no doubt this troubled them. I mean, they would say, boy, if, if the scribes and the Pharisees don't have it down, we don't have a prayer because they are the standard of righteousness in our communities. But could you imagine, you know, for us, we're taking bit by bit. It's taking us weeks. It will take us months to go through the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus spoke this in one day, in one sitting. He sat down. They came to him on the Mount, and he began to speak. And so as he spoke these things, I I don't know that he gave commentary. He might have given commentary on some of the things, or he might have just spoken the things, you know. But Could you imagine, you're sitting there, you're there with Jesus, and he makes this statement in verse 20, but then he wraps up this teaching after taking six commandments from the law, and again, the law is not ten commandments, the law for the Jews was 618 commandments, he takes six commandments from the law, and he interprets them as they were intended to be interpreted. He goes through those commandments, and your mind is swimming because the things he's saying are really blowing your mind because you realize it's not just a matter of doing the deed, but it really is a matter, from God's perspective, of the heart. If the heart's not right, then we're wrong with God. And then he wraps up this teaching of these six commandments, and he makes that statement that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, we'll get to that. Jesus, he takes another commandment. Last week it was murder, this week it's adultery. And he says, you have heard. Again, you have heard. Many of them did not read these things on their own. They heard these things from the scribes and the Pharisees. You have heard, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we see this, of course, we see it in Exodus chapter 20, in the Ten Commandments, verse 14. We also see it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. And most people, not all people, but most people, would read this, they would read this commandment, and they would say, no problem, I haven't committed adultery, moving on. And then Jesus says, not so fast. (laughs) And Jesus takes this commandment, and he, he interprets it as it was meant to be interpreted. And your heart just sinks. If you're an honest person, your heart sinks when you see the standard that God has. The standard, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her. You say, I guess it's not so easy. I can imagine maybe some protesting in their heart hearts back then and I could imagine even some today protesting that's too hard or that's too strict or that's impossible he says whoever looks at a woman to lust for her I think it's worth noting that last week dealing with the law of murder the emphasis was upon says upon the spoken word He says, but I say to you, if you say, if you say, if you say. And today the emphasis is not upon the act of adultery, but the emphasis is upon looking and lusting. And so, of course, you know, this just kind of really shakes your world. 
if you take these things seriously. Just as murder is not just an issue of the hands, you know, it's an issue of the heart, so true adultery begins with the heart. In fact, James, in his short little epistle, he wrote this, but each one is tempted when the devil comes in. No, he doesn't say that. He says each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. So Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her. Now, guys, I would be in error if I neglected the elephant in the room. I don't mean that literally, but the elephant in the room of our culture. The elephant in the room of our culture is pornography. The whole purpose of pornography is to look and lust and to make billions of dollars, you know, for those that are producing and making the stuff. But to look and to lust, that's the whole purpose of pornography. And pornography is a real issue. It's an issue. In fact, I was going to give some stats, and to be honest, I just kind of deleted them from my notes because they were absolutely depressing. And I didn't want you to be thinking about pornography and the fact that many young people, young children, are exposed to this garbage So I deleted that, even though I just said it. But the word lust, it means, this is what it means. It means to set the heart upon, to long for. To set the heart upon, to long for. So, obviously, this is not a sin that only men could commit. So you guys know this. You know, you're you're adults. I, I... it says his. I mean, that's just kind of the, the, the speech of, of the Bible. It's rarely a her unless it's specifically speaking of women. But this applies to all people, men and women. So you could say a woman who looks upon a man to lust for him has committed adultery in her heart already. I want you to think about this, and I'm going to present a, a statement to you, and you're going to think it, you might think it's ridiculous, but it's really not that ridiculous because I've had a number of people say such things to me, and this is it. Well, if I've already committed adultery in my heart, I might as well go ahead and commit the act. By the way, that's insane thinking. That's not, that's not rational thinking. And it's also justifying, it's trying to justify, well, I'm already guilty, I guess, according to Jesus, I'm already guilty, I might as well just go ahead. And... But I want to remind you of something, and that is that the act is much different than the sin of the heart. There are ramifications that come from the actual sin, right? I want you to think of David. David, all of us love David, you know, David is one of our biblical heroes, most of us. We look at this man, I think for men, we like David because, uh, you know, not only was he a poet and songwriter, but he was a warrior. And, and he just kind of had this faith that people admired. That's what drew Jonathan to him because he was just, you know, David, man, what a mighty guy you are, you know. And, and, uh, and yet, as Christians, we know that he was a man who had a heart after God. 
And you look at David's life, and though he wasn't perfect, you know, his life was lived fairly well. And then he becomes older. We looked at a similar thing on Wednesday night. We looked at his son Solomon. Solomon's heart, when he was old, was turned away from the Lord, and he began to worship all these other gods from all these other women that he had married, 700 and another 300. But David, he's older. It's the time for the kings to go out to fight. He doesn't go out to fight. He's at home. And 2 Samuel 11.2 says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. Of course, that would have been like a patio, flat surface. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. To what? To look at. You know, guys, listen, we need to be careful. I've, I've heard people say, you know, because you have your biblical heroes and you want to justify their sins. And I've heard people say it was Bathsheba. She's the one who did it. She set him up. But think about it. What is she just sitting in a tub? Like night after night, hour after hour, waiting that perhaps David can't sleep at night and he would come out and gaze upon her nude body and call for... I don't think so. Bathsheba was doing what the women would do at that time. It was nighttime. People are asleep. Think of living at that time. You want a bath? You got to wait till everyone's asleep so that you could go out on your patio because you don't have inside plumbing, indoor plumbing. And she was just bathing there. Now, I'm not saying that she was innocent. It's obvious from the text that she was far from innocent. But I don't think for a moment that this was a setup, that she was enticing David. Based upon what Jesus teaches here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, David had committed adultery with her in his heart already. He looked at her. She was beautiful to behold. And we know that he was lusting for her. Now, if David would have stopped with just the look, I don't want to justify the look. I don't want to take away from what Jesus is saying. But if he would have just stopped with the look. But he didn't. The text goes on to say, So David sent and inquired about the woman. Who is she? The verse goes on, and someone, it doesn't give the someone's name, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? See, God was using the someone to say to David, in essence, David, stop. Think about this. What are you doing? This is wrong. Don't do this. This is wrong on many levels. This is wrong because she's the wife. She's married. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's the wife of one of your mighty men. You know those guys that risked their lives for you, David? But that doesn't stop David. David sent messengers and took her. It almost sounds like it was by force until you read the rest of the verse. And it says, she came to him. It indicates that she was a willing participant. And he lay with her. To sin in the heart is bad enough, but it's even worse to commit the act. The act 
has obvious destructive ramifications. Listen, guys, if David would have stopped, if he would have stopped at the look, David never would have heard. He never would have heard things like, I am with child. He never would have heard, Uriah the Hittite died also. He never would have heard, you are the man, David. He never would have heard, you've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And he never would have heard, the child is dead. Speaking of the child that was conceived by Bathsheba. If David would have stopped with the look, he never would have heard these words. May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise against him, against you, to do you harm, be like this young man. Do you remember who was being spoken of? Absalom, his son. He never would have heard that. David knew. In fact, you know, when, when Absalom rose up, why didn't David stay and fight? I think he didn't stay and fight, for number one, because he knew he was guilty. He knew that he was bringing all of this madness upon himself because of his sin with Bathsheba. And so we see David, he, he leaves Jerusalem, his head is covered, he's barefoot. There's mourning. I mean, this isn't a time of, of, of warriors going out to fight. This is, this is almost a, a defeated, you know, man. He's just leaving. He doesn't want there to be civil war in Jerusalem. And he leaves. And re- remember his heart for Absalom. He loved his son Absalom, even though his son Absalom showed no love to David. But he said, he made it clear, he says, you know, hey, be careful with the, the man Absalom. Be careful with my son. And of course, there were others who had ulterior motives, and they took him out, I mean, without any hesitation. And remember how David was beside himself. He kept weeping. He kept weeping. This wasn't the only son he ever lost. He lost other children. You think of the chaos that happened in David's home. One son from one marriage raping one of his daughters from another marriage. I mean, just, oh, craziness, craziness, craziness. If you're visiting, you might be saying, that's a man after God's own heart. Listen, the thing that made David different than others is that David acknowledged his sin. He took his lumps and he repented. He didn't try to justify it. He didn't try to make excuses for it. You look at Saul, the king before him. Boy, he just tried to justify every action he did, every sinful action he did. It's not my fault. It's not my problem. He wasn't a man. But David took his lumps. The point is, is that the desire and the deed are not identical, but but spiritually speaking, they are equivalent. You know, guys, we're looking at Jesus teaching on the law And he's teaching of the importance of the attitude of the heart. And we might be tempted, if we're not diligent students of the scripture, we might think, well, yes, this was a new thing. Jesus was teaching the importance of the heart. And you might give the children of Israel a break and say, well, how how would they know that this is how God meant the law to be kept? And I suggest to you, because in the law itself, God was declaring it's an issue of the heart. And this is what I mean. 
The Tenth Commandment of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, we have this commandment, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. And the word covet means, this is the definition of the Hebrew word, to delight in with the desire to have for yourself. Let me read it again. To delight in with the desire to have for yourself. It sounds like lust to me. I see it. I like it. I want it for me. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor uh, his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is, in your, that is your neighbor's. You know, okay. Do you know what Paul wrote? Paul wrote, of course, at the t- after Jesus was crucified and ascended into heaven, Paul wrote these words. I would not have known sin except through the law. And then he gives an example. He says, I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, thou shalt not covet. Do you understand what he's saying? He says coveting. It's a sin of the heart. No one can see you coveting. Oh, you're coveting. I can see it. I see it in your eyes. No, it's, it's an issue of the heart. God sees the coveting heart. No one else sees the coveting heart. The point is, is that the law has, has always stressed the importance of the heart, the inner person. It's not something new that Jesus was teaching. Now, Jesus goes on and he teaches us, you know, his hearers to have a radical uh, response. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's gross. And as I look around today, I don't see any one-eyed people here, you know, or one-armed people. Obviously, the Lord was not speaking of a literal bodily mutilation. You know what you would find if you took this literally and you started gouging and cutting and casting and, you know, you would find it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Can a blind man lust? Yes, Guys, it's an issue of the heart. Again, the heart, the heart, the heart. Jesus was saying that there should be a radical reaction, that we should deal with the problem. Pluck it out. Cast it from you. Cut it off. Cast it from you. Cast it. It literally means to throw it away in an intense way. That's the picture in an intense way. i got to come back to it. I know it's uncomfortable, but it is, it is a self-inflicted plague on many people, men and women, Christian men and women, and that is pornography. And pornography, it is a fantasy. It is not real. Uh, it is this imaginary life or action that's played out in the mind. First 
on the screen, whatever you're view- or whatever you're viewing the stuff on, and then it becomes a part of the mind. Isn't it interesting how the things you want to remember, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I admire people that can take large portions of scripture and memorize them word for word, you know, verbatim. I'd love to be able to do that. I just don't have a mind for that. But there's other things that I'd really like to forget, you know, maybe of my past or whatever it might be, and they're just there. And that's the problem with pornography. Pornography, it affects the marriage. It affects the marriage bed. The Bible tells us that the marriage bed is not defiled, but many marriage beds are defiled because we're bringing pornographic uh, things into the marriage bed. It has really taken its toll upon marriages, upon young people. Um, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't do it, but I'll tell you, as a pastor, I have heard some horrible things that all relate to pornography that have just really destroyed marriages and lives and individuals and so you say, Dan, why are you even mentioning it? Because if it's a problem, cut it out. You say, that's easy for you to say. Well, I'm not saying it. Jesus is saying, cut it out. Cast it from you. You know, cut it off. Pluck it out. <laughs> get rid of it. Do whatever you need to do to get rid of that stuff. Now, guys, Listen. There are other things. Oh, gosh, I can't believe I'm going there. This is a spontaneous moment, but I'm going to say it. Isn't it amazing how pornography is labeled by different degrees? And so, you can look at some of the that's disgusting. That's wrong. That should not take place. But there are many Christians who justify things like, now I'm going to say this, and I really don't know anything about it other than the short little clips I read when the whole thing came out. Because I couldn't understand the fascination with it among Christian people, Christian women, not Christian men, Christian women. Fifty Shades of Grey. The little I read about it, I was surprised that Christian women would have any interest in something like that at all. And I guess it was the storyline. See, we can, we can still be lusting, but we say, well, it's not the images. It's not this. I'm not looking. How about the romance novels, you know? You, you kind of create this fantasy in your mind. Oh, this is what a real man would do. He'd sweep me off my feet and put me on his black stallion and we would ride off into the sunset and he would kiss my neck. And, you know, it's like, well, what are you going there for? I mean, it's not reality. It's a fantasy of your mind. And here's the problem, guys. We live in a world that justifies almost absolutely everything. Every perversion. And because we live in the world, and many of us aren't, aren't, you know, many of us are 
not growing in our knowledge of the word of God and the grace of God, and we're not being led by the Spirit. And we might say, well, I'm the letter of the law kind of guy or gal, you know, and show me where it says I can't read Fifty Shades of Grey. Show me in the Bible. Show me, show me. Well, it's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law, that, that personal conviction, Mario prayed it at the end of our last service, and it just struck a chord with me that, that you know, of course, we don't live by the law. We don't need, uh, born-again Christians, we don't need a law that says, thou shalt not. We have the spirit of God in us that can say to us and does say to us individually, don't do that. That's not right for you. I don't care. if Even these areas that might be considered gray areas, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. I've said it many times before. For me, it was drinking, you know. I, I started drinking when I was 12 years old. And it was easy to drink at that age because uh, we had a keg. We didn't have it. My dad had a keg in the, in the backyard. And so, you know, you can't tell how much is going out of a keg because you can't see through a keg, you know. And, um, and so started there, and it just, you know, kind of went... You know, I became a Christian when I was 20. And so by the time I was legal to go into a bar, I had no interest in going into a bar because I stopped drinking. Because I was the Lord, the day I received the Lord, the Lord, I never heard an audible voice from the Lord, ever. But I just felt this impression upon my heart. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it. But it was, I don't want you ever to drink ever again. Okay, Lord. And, and that's, you know, conviction I have. And now, the longer I live, I'm so thankful for that conviction because I look around and I see how alcohol and drugs have destroyed so many members of our family, immediate and extended family. It is a destroyer. Now, see, some would say, well, yeah, but, you know, the Bible says, uh, 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 Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach. Well, do you have a stomach issue? You, you, you can't get Pepto? I mean, you know, I mean we, don't, we don't hang on things. Like, this was a personal thing to Timothy. So do this, Timothy. Oh, okay, right, you know. He obviously wasn't saying, hey, you should, you, should get a, you should become addicted to wine. Because in the same letter, he tells them, you know, speaking of elders and everything, that they cannot be given to wine, you know. So obviously, you look at the scriptures and you realize what's, what's being spoken there. The point is, guys, is that we need to be careful. We need to recognize that there's our part and there's God's part. You know, if you start plucking and cutting, you realize it's not helping. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31, of course, this isn't speaking to the church, this is speaking to Israel, but I'm going to read the scripture because it really ties in with our text today. Ezekiel wrote, as he's inspired by the Lord to write, cast away from you, so it sounds like what we're reading, doesn't it? Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit for why should you die, O house of Israel? Now you read that, that's an exhortation and you would say, okay, how do we do that? (laughs) Israel might say, how do we do that? How do we get a new heart? In a new spirit. A little bit later, in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you're familiar with Ezekiel chapter 36, you know that it's speaking 
prophetically of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that would be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. But he said this, he says, I will give you a new heart. So now he answers their question many chapters later. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Well, how, Lord? Did he do that? Did he do that in the, under the old covenant? Did he do, when did that happen? It didn't happen until Jesus. It happened, Christ said, it's important that I ascend, that I go back to the Father so that the helper, the comforter could come to you. I go, he comes. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there's where we get the new heart. Since the problem is the heart, our heart must be changed. Then there's only one who could change the heart. And so we need to call upon him for the strength and for salvation and for a new heart. Our part Pluck it out. Cut it out. Cast it from you. His part, new heart. Hey, that rhymes. You know, guys, listen. As Christians, see, I I wish I could say that once you become a Christian and you're born again, you never struggle with sin, but you would know that I was not telling the truth because you live in your own body. And the fact of the matter is, is that Christians still give the devil a place in their life. In fact, it's the Christian who gives the devil a place in their life, not the non-believer, because the non-believer already is, I mean, they're given over to Satan. But the exhortation is to the believer not to give the devil a place in your life, a foothold in your life. And we give the devil a foothold in our life when we begin to justify sins that we should recognize as sin and repent of. There are things that you know aren't right in your heart, not because you turn to a chapter or verse and say, I can't do this. This is what the Bible says. It's because the Spirit of God has said to you, no. And if the child of God would be more open to listening to the Spirit of God, we wouldn't find ourselves in the trouble that we find ourselves in. The man or woman who, you know, my marriage is not what it used to be, and, but I'm managing, you know, I'm just going to be the faithful wife, the faithful husband, do my part, you know, almost like we're martyrs or something, you know, and... And I'm going to do my part. And then someone comes into your life. They happen to be of the opposite sex. And it starts out innocent enough, doesn't it? And if you don't have the safeguards, you say, well, we're just friends. I don't understand. Personally, I would be very upset. I'm an old timer. I'm an old guy. I would not want my wife to have a male friend that's not our friend. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That wouldn't be safe. And neither, neither would she want me to have a, you know, I'm going out to breakfast, I'm going out to lunch, I'm going out to coffee with, with so-and-so, you know. Yeah, we're just going to chat. You know. I, I wouldn't do, you're, you're setting yourself 
up for a crash. I wanted to say fall, but I want to make it more dramatic because it's a crash. Because many times there is this emotional attachment that has nothing to do with sex. And you start coveting. And then you start lusting. And when you're at that point, because you've already taken down any barriers that there might be, you've justified the action. Well, if my marriage was stronger, that never would have happened. What are you saying, honey? Well, it's your fault. Could you imagine? It's your fault. I committed adultery, and it's your fault, husband, wife. By the way, don't let anyone ever lay a trip like that on you, because it's a lie. No one, <laughs> no one gets you to sin. You sin on your own. You cannot justify your sin. This is why, again, it goes back to the heart. This is why the Lord says, listen, I want you to examine your own heart. I want you to be led by the conviction of your own heart. I, and if we don't do that, we will justify all sorts of things. In Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to just start reading. It says, therefore, verse 1, or there is, not therefore, there, there's the therefore, <laughs> there is therefore, so I have both, okay. Now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, comma. Now, in the margin of my Bible, it says that the rest of the verse is deleted from some of the manuscripts. So you say, who do not walk according to the Spirit. And you say, oh, that's not there. And some of them, that's not there. But it's okay. Let's just keep reading here. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was Weak through the flesh. Whose flesh? Your flesh. My flesh. This is why no one can keep the law. Why? Our flesh is so weak. We cannot keep the law the way God intended the law to be kept. Now look at it, guys. You don't think I'm teaching heresy. I'm just reading the text. Look what it says. God did. So what we couldn't do. God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice it it does not say by us. It says in us. There's a difference. In us, who... So if you're concerned about, you say, oh, Dan, I wish you wouldn't have pointed out that that, the rest of that verse was deleted, you know. We need that in there because that's the exhortation, walk by the Spirit. Well, we have it right here. So it doesn't matter if it was deleted (laughs) in the first verse or not. Look what it says. The law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
I think that what Jesus is saying here on the Sermon on the Mount is he wants the reader for us, he wants the hearer for them to stop and say, where's my mind? What am I focused on? Am I angry and I just won't let this thing go when I've justified my anger? Could you been standing before the Lord and say, Lord, I wouldn't be so angry if that other person wouldn't have done this or that. And he would have said, what other person? What are you talking about? There is no other person. It's you. Next. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the Lord's concerned about us. He doesn't, he doesn't allow us to justify. Oh, I was telling some of our servants, serving teachers and all at our prayer meeting this morning. Yesterday I watched a documentary. A woman, she lived in South Africa. She's Jewish, Polish. She went to the concentration camps during the war as a little girl. She spent four years in the concentration camps. I didn't realize that they would take them and send them from concentration camp to concentration camp to concentration camp. I didn't realize that. There were pictures. You know, the pictures of the Holocaust are very, very disturbing. But I think that they're, you know, we need to see those, I, frankly, in my mind. I mean, we look at a lot of gross stuff. And there we're looking at what has happened to human beings. But she was kind of sharing her story. She had never talked about the Holocaust Her husband, of course, knew that she was a Holocaust survivor. She was there, I think, as a little girl. I think she was 13 and then 17 by the time of the liberation. And um, she said, I never talked to my children, my own sons, about the Holocaust because we were concerned about the second generation Holocaust you know, survivor, that it just kind of messes them up, you know, to think that their parent or grandparent had gone through these horrible things. And she said, I just refused to talk about it. And she said, but my grandson, so her grandson had interest, they're Jewish. Um, She lived in Israel for a time, and then when she met her husband and married him, they went to South Africa where he was from, and she ended up spending the rest of her life there. But she was talking about how her grandson had such an interest. I mean, these are my people, and this happened to our people. And and Grandma, I want to hear your story. And so she began to open up and tell about her story. We have some little snapshots of people that had gone through the concentration camps and the horrors and the death and all of these things. And they share a little bit about their heart, what they were feeling, what they were thinking. For her, as she spoke about the things that happened, she wasn't stoic, but neither was she emotional. She wasn't breaking down and crying. But as she finished her story or her account, she stopped and she paused, and I think that was the emotional moment And she said it was after the Holocaust when, you know, you didn't have time to think about things when you were there. You were just trying to survive. But afterwards, I had problems. I I would think about the things I saw and I experienced, and it was really hard for me. 
I was thinking of how, you know, we know that statistically there are many Jewish people that became atheists after the Holocaust because in their mind they thought, how could God allow his people, or his people, you know, uh, to go through such horrible things? And so many of them turned, you know, they don't believe in Jehovah, Yahweh, at all. But others, it seems as if their, their uh, faith was strengthened. There were those who had gone through the few stories that I've read or heard about where they were dealing with the sins of their heart, the hatred that they had for those who were over them. Uh, the woman that I was listening to last night, she says the SS women were worse than the men. They were so horrible. She said, I, I could not understand how a woman could be so hateful and treat people the way they treated them. My point is, is that as I was listening to that, I thought, boy, Lord, we're a bunch of babies. Because, you know, we haven't even come close to things like that. And, and yet we seem to walk around traumatized by, you know, you know, Dad didn't say goodbye to me today or something. You know, I, I don't want to make light of it, but, but just traumatized by things. And, 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 and we could just have such a bitter root and I'm not going to forgive. And you dig your heels in and I'll never forgive. And it's like the Lord is saying, I forgave you of everything. You know, there are kids that won't forgive their parents. They just grow up. And, and you know, the other siblings kind of look and they say, well, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what she's talking about. We grew up in the same home. To you, our parents were abusive. To us, they were mom and dad. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes parents, they just kind of write off their children. I don't want to have anything to do with you. No, you've crossed the line. Get out of my house. I won't. And you just think, how can you justify that? How can you not forgive? If his mercies are new every morning, how is it that we can't, through him, have mercies that are new every morning for those around us? Do you see what I'm saying? It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Murder, it's a heart issue. Adultery, it's a heart issue. Unforgiveness, it's a heart issue. We need to realize that our hearts are desperately evil. They're wicked. And yet God wants to give us a new heart. If you're a believer, you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. But you must, I must, walk out that reality. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we must do it. We, we must take responsibility for our own actions. Stop doing that. Stop saying that. That's nasty. That's perverse. Get that thing away from you. Cast that thing away. Burn that phone. Destroy that computer. Whatever it is. It has to be that radical. Whatever it takes. And even then, when you've done everything you could do, Marielle, come up, please. When you've done everything you could do, and you're alone, and those thoughts, those familiar thoughts or images or whatever they might be, he did this to me, she did that to me, I'll never forgive them. I hate them for this. They're going to pay. Or lustful thoughts. Oh, this is pleasing. 
oh, this is desirable to my flesh. When we're alone in those moments, we got to acknowledge our sin before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. You know, guys, our walk with the Lord has to be such that the Lord only has to whisper. For me, coming in this morning, I'm not saying that my relationship with the Lord is, you know, at the pinnacle. We all are growing, and I just want to grow in my relationship with Him. But I'm thankful that there are times that He just says to me, in my heart, You're angry, Danny. Stop. Or this morning, watch your pride. Yes, Lord. Okay. Whatever it is, we don't live by the letter of the law. We live by the spirit of the law. So would you stand with me? Let's walk in the spirit. If you don't know the Lord... I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you about these things. I will try not to talk as long. but Father, I pray for each one of us here, downstairs, those watching on the live feed. Father, please, we are, we are on the threshold of eternity. You're coming for your church. We can only think about your coming for your church now because we won't be able to think about it when it's happening because when it happens it will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye so there won't be any time to think about it but I pray that we'd be thinking about it now and I pray that as we think about it that it would spur us on to say oh I don't want to hold on to this I gotta let that thing go I've let the devil in my life looking at these things that are ungodly, that are perverse. I'm holding a grudge toward my spouse. I'm I'm not forgiving my children. I'm not loving my parents and honoring them as I should. And that we would just be open to you to bring the conviction that we just forgive that would cut off, that would gouge out, that would cast away. Even now, Lord, I pray that even as, as we're in this moment, I pray that things are coming to mind. And they might not be the things that, you know, again, we kind of think of, you know, yeah, it's that ugly pornography, but it might be something else. It might be there at home waiting. And it needs to go. And you keep saying, I don't want this here. Get rid of this. And we just keep saying, no, 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 no. And we keep justifying. I pray that today would be the day that we just say, no, I'm going to be obedient. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen.